Welcome, I'm Debbie George Addis. Welcome to America Can We Talk. Today on my show, we're going to talk about Pelosi, Schiff, and Nadler all surrender on impeachment, but don't count on it. We're going to have a very special guest, Star Parker, founder of Cure, joining us. And third, updates on the feminine exit and women walk away, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. Well, yesterday there was a lot of excitement. There, were, uh, there was actually a statement by uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, in an interview of the Washington Post published yesterday where she said essentially she does not think that the Democrats should go forward with the impeachment effort of President Trump. She said he's not worth it. We get more in a moment on what she had to say, but then very soon after chiming in were two other key Democrat and leadership Democrats in Washington leadership positions also saying they thought the same thing. You had Adam Schiff, who is the Democrat from California, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, as well as Jerry Jerry or Jerome Nadler, who is the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, both weighing in saying Nancy Pelosi more or less was probably right. So First, that tells you, I'm going to guess that they have either seen the Mueller report or they have seen a summary of it or gotten a summary or heads up from somebody that tells them there's nothing there to impeach President Trump on. I'm going to guess that's the case. But the reason I say don't hold your breath, don't get too excited, is this. Number one, nothing in the announcements by Pelosi or Schiff or Nadler said, why don't we put aside this ongoing witch hunt and move forward with the business of the American people? None of them said that. Pelosi had some language like, well, unless of course we find something really, really upsetting or really, really important, acknowledging the witch hunt, the digging for something, the Stalin era style tactic of show me the man, I'll find you the crime, investigating of President Trump and everyone related to him will go on. Number two, Jerome Nadler, who's announced he is going to be digging in, he's the one who sent out a document request to 81 different people connected with President Trump. He has not said, you know, never mind. why don't we just go forward and do the job we were elected to do? No, he's gonna continue doing that. Adam Schiff has not even the slightest back down from his committee's investigation. Again, Schiff is head of House Intelligence. He's been talking about investigating everything related to President Trump he can think of. So these people are not really surrendering that they won't go for impeachment later. But I'll tell you why I think they're doing this. I think number one, they have heads up, as I said, from Mueller. Uh, there's nothing in the report. Number two, President Trump's approval ratings are too high. They wanted to have destroyed him in the eyes of the American people before getting to the impeachment point. They figured if they had everyone in America just on fire, down on Trump, then they would have more, you know, the wind at their backs, they'd have more support from the public 
to impeach President Trump. The, the truth is, sad uh, truth, if you're on the Democrat side, President Trump holds very steady in his support uh, among the American people and certainly among likely voters and among the people who voted for him. So they have nothing that signals to them that Trump is weak anyway. And you know, I tell you something else. Another reason I'm troubled about this, there's been speculation all along that somehow when they, we finally get to the end of the Mueller investigation, which by the way is apparently funded through September, so we're not really there yet, but apparently funded through September, I've been concerned that people on the Trump team would encourage him to say, look, Mueller might have something, you know, he might go after, he might want to indict you, he might want to indict your children, he might go after, you know, uh, your son-in-law and your children. And on the other hand, Trump could say, yeah, but I'm going to go after Hillary Clinton, James Comey, uh, John Brennan, the whole slew of Democrats who actually did commit horrible uh, acts while they were in positions of power, they abused their power. Hillary Clinton's the one who conspired with the Russians through the whole fusion GPS scandal. You have the DOJ, the FBI misusing the FISA warrant process, apparently committing perjury in representing to the FISA court that they had sufficient reasons for FISA warrants to be issued. These are serious crimes. So the temptation all along, the mindset has been among many people, you know, Trump might take the deal. He might say, okay, Leave my kids alone, even though they haven't necessarily done anything wrong, but don't indict them, leave them alone. And in exchange, Trump will drop the possibility of having the new attorney general go after Hillary Clinton, James Comey, John Brennan, uh, the whole slew of them inside the, D the DOJ and FBI who perpetrated this unbelievable Russian hoax on the American people. I kind of wonder if that's what's happening here. They've gotten to the end of the Mueller thing. They don't have anything hot and heavy. Trump wants us behind him. He doesn't want his children indicted. Hillary Clinton and the Democrats want Hillary safe from possible prosecution. So everyone's reached a behind the scenes deal. Now folks, I'm not telling you I have inside knowledge about this. I'm telling you though that I'm a pretty darn serious student of what happens in Washington and of the uh, the points on both sides about whether who should be in trouble and for how much trouble. And I'm sure were that deal laid on the desk of Donald Trump, if we drop everything against you, drop against your kids, no one's prosecuted in your family, will you let Hillary and the whole Comey cabal go? And I, if he took that, if that happened, as I say, speculation, if that happened, I hope it didn't, but if it did, I could understand President Trump's decision to try to move out, move beyond this mess that has consumed headlines in America since before he was sworn in and say, let's move forward. I don't know what happened, but to wrap up this first five today, I would not take it for granted that the Democrats are really done in Congress trying to find a basis to impeach President Trump. They're just at this moment figuring out there's really, there's nothing there like they thought there was. I'm Debbie Georgettis. That was my first five. Stay tuned because we are going to turn to an interview with Star Parker, who is the founder of CURE, the Center for Urban Renewal and Education. She is joining us by phone today and we'll be talking to her in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. As I mentioned in the beginning segment of our show, we have a guest joining us by phone. 
I think and hope, I have my incredibly wonderful producer, Matt. I believe we have Star Parker on the phone. Hello, Star. Hi, yes. <laughs> Matt is wonderful, so I'm here. <laughs> it is wonderful. It's great to hear your voice. I'm so glad you could join okay. us today. I'm going to take one moment to introduce you to our guests. I know you've been on my show several times, but Star Parker, as I mentioned, is the founder of Cure, the Center for Urban Renewal and Education. The website is urbancure.org. But Star Parker is, in addition to being the founder of Cure, she's a thought leader in this country about the ways we get at inner city poverty, how we help lift people up, not just how we create new handouts, new government programs, but what is it that takes, what, what's needed to really uplift Americans in this country who are, net, who are not yet fully part of the American dream. There's a lot more I can say about her. She wins all sorts of prize, uh, prizes and accolades. She's a prolific writer. She writes in, among the top um, places in the country people go to find the news. So she's really a, a great contributor to the American political conversation. So glad to have you join us. So. Star, let me start with, would you just yeah. tell, yeah, and by the way, I want to commend you, Star, on your website. I got into, I got distracted today trying to get ready for this interview, reading your website, mm -hmm. but urbancure.org, uh -oh. <laughs> yeah, and it was really <laughs> wonderful, actually. It's so impressive. I urge all our listeners to go to it, but the motto at the beginning of the whole website, fighting poverty and restoring dignity through faith, freedom, and personal responsibility, Star. Let's just start with, what does Cure do? Well, how we fight poverty and restore dignity through messages of faith, freedom, and responsibility is, is I call them three C's in three P's and three C's. And what that means is that we, um, we promote, uh, we preserve, we protect three C's, Christianity, capitalism, and our Constitution. And we do this in three areas. We work in public policy right now. We are uh, involved in the urban initiative that the president has launched uh, through his opportunity zones, as well as work with other elected officials in the Congress to try to get um, new anti-poverty interests, to try to undo the $900 billion that we currently spend annually in our anti-poverty programs, uh, which we all can admit are bankrupting people's lives. Uh, we also uh, have a media center that then works in the public square to get the messages out to the general population. We house a uh, our own news network called blackcommunitynews.com. I think it's trending about a million people now that are getting their news, alternative news from what you normally hear in these hard-hit communities. And then we also do in poor communities through our clergy program. We promote these ideas through our clergy program, which now umbrellas about uh, 850 pastors that are serving in uh, several of these um, 8,700 distressed zip codes that we've identified in the country. So we educate them, we equip them with information, they network with each other, and then we activate them to go back into their communities and be the alternative to the welfare state. Okay, we could probably just wrap up the interview right now, because what you just said <laughs> is so extraordinary what you do. I mean, Cure is such a blessing to America, to conservatism, to low-income communities, and I love your whole idea of working through pastors to get your messages right. into people in the communities that might not otherwise tune into what you have to say, or and it's a way, it's a, a trusted source that from them for people in the communities to go to to hear something about your message from their pastor. I, I just love that. That's right. 
It's well, cool. you know what's interesting is that after I consulted on federal welfare reform in the 90s, is I found that the people in the community didn't object to changes that were current. They just didn't know about the changes that were current. And the left was doing then what they do now is distort information uh, so that people would be fearful. And so after consulting, I hosted a, a um, just a conference. I thought, you know, I'm going to just talk to the pastors and let them know, okay, life after welfare, what you're going to do now. And we prepared for about 40 pastors to come, thinking that there wouldn't be that much interest, and over 400 showed up. So we knew then that they just need information. And so I started organizing that about that time, and now it's grown to where we have that many pastors that annually about 10% actually come to Washington for a couple of days of intense um, uh, information. But it's a regular working program, and they are really getting to know each other. In fact, just this past weekend, one of the pastors that just met another pastor uh, that's out in California, they're swapping pulpits to teach in each other's uh, pulpits. So it is very exciting uh, to just uh, an alternative. You know what happened, Debbie, is that after federal welfare reform, I looked at the data and it showed that a third of blacks are on our side. They, they kept telling pollsters that they're evangelical and conservative. But I felt that the people that represent the interest of the right or the center right never had a marketing department to these populations. And when you're looking at the demographic shifts in our country, especially as they're escalating today, you have about 180 million of uh, European descent of Americans, and you have about 140 million of other descents than European historically. And so we, we have to talk to these populations, and this is the way that CURE has determined best to reach the people. The third that keep polling on our side is to go through their pastors. I love that. I, I think it's just extraordinary. It's, it's just, it's unique. And, you know, I guess it's a good segue into one of the topics I wanted to ask you about. So many people who say they're advocating for the poor in this country, and they may genuinely care. So they're advocating to try to help the poor somehow. The argument that they make is one big effort uh, needed in order to help the poor is to raise the minimum wage. In fact, I don't know if Matt, my happy producer, has this um, tweet, but one of the, the very, I would call her one of the prominent Democrat uh, potential primary candidates for the presidency, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, put out a tweet where she was essentially lamenting how somehow, and I'll just read it, it's up on our screen, I think, behind us. Back when I was a kid, a minimum wage job could support a family of three. Today, a full-time minimum wage job in America won't keep a mama and a baby out of poverty. Our movement is about making real fundamental change to fix this. One thing she's advocating is a $15 an hour minimum wage in America. And uh, I know that she's, I mean, she's a socialist-minded person, so she would have an orchestrated uh, answer to, you know, fixing poverty is just force employers to pay more. But... I, I understand that you are not on the same page with her. So tell me your view on this minimum wage up to $15 suggestion. Well, first of all, let's correct something. These folks do not care anything about poor people because if they did, then they would be promoting the virtues of capitalism to solve their problems. They would make sure that we had um, uh, fewer taxes, more limited government, and excessive regulations so that business will grow, so that people will then have a, a, a lot of opportunity to work in their community. So first of all, she's disingenuous, and all of it's built in a lie. But secondly, it's a lie that uh, you could support a family of three off of a minimum wage when she was growing up. It's not true. It's been disproven. Uh, in fact, they were what we consider poor. <laughs> That's why they were working hard to get out of poverty. It was poverty then, it's poverty now. But the biggest challenge is not just that they want this minimum wage. The bigger challenge is that they, um, 
that minimum wage, everywhere we see a minimum wage, you run business out of that community. And so you get rid of not just that first rung, which is a challenge because, you know, we need those first rungs of employment, but it also gets rid of the, that, that third rung in the, in the age of technology. It's not that McDonald's is going to fire the, the cleaner of the place because if you insist that that person who cleans the McDonald's needs $15, then what does McDonald's have to pay the cook? So the cook now, he's at $18, then what happens to the cashier? The cashier is replaced by a machine. So we should be very, very concerned about all of those that keep promoting uh, on the backs of the poor uh, these ideas of socialism. They've never worked throughout history, and they're not going to work in America. I couldn't agree more. And it was completely fallacious for her to argue that somehow, even back in the era when she was growing up, that somehow families supported themselves when one person had a minimum wage uh, level job. I mean, those jobs are, I don't have it's the not number. not true. Yeah. It's not I, even true, and she knows it. But, yeah. but maybe, she, you know, maybe she wasn't one of them. I don't know her background, but it's not true. They were poor. That's the reason that we wanted to move and, our, and the brilliance of our country to build out a capitalistic society and system so that people won't be poor. So we built out a great middle class capitalism and the virtues of capitalism are good for society because it builds out a middle class. It builds out business and competition so that you will have opportunity to grow your wage uh, on your own, between you and your employer, not as some government hand that interjects itself into this decision-making process between employer and employee. Uh, and every time we see that occur, we see distress occur for those that need those jobs the most. I love those points. And one more on this minimum wage, and I meant to look it up. I didn't this morning. But the percentage of people in America working at minimum wage uh, who are, it's their first job, they are teenagers or first job out of high school. It's a very high percent of people in those minimum wage jobs uh, who are just learning how to be a worker, learning how to be an employee. It's not, it's not really that these are a mom and dad with a family of four supporting themselves on minimum wage. I mean, you may even know those numbers, but you know what I'm saying? The minimum wage jobs are mostly held by young first job out of high school people. That's, then that's where, or the low-wage jobs, not necessarily minimal, because low-wage employment means that it's the first tier in most businesses, and you're absolutely right, over half of them are held by teenagers or, or people entering into the workforce. And then we have a very large percentage who are second-income earners. They're, they're moms whose children are at school, so while they're at school, they go in and take a little bit of work. So this is not a place for government, which is the bigger um, issue on the table. This is in, for a presidential candidate to run off of this, then perhaps that presidential candidate should not make it any higher in their career because it would devastate <laughs> the country if you, if you uh, had them running businesses. I'm for that. On a related note, Star, you wrote a great column. And again, for, for our listeners, we're speaking with Star Parker, who's a wonderful writer. She has pieces in all sorts of conservative sources. One article you wrote was called Socialism Has Already Hurt America. I love that article. I love the point you make about how socialistic thinking has already been in play in low-income communities in America. Can you expand on that? Yeah, often we look or, um, or we will use the discussions and point to countries like Cuba or now lately Venezuela 
um, and some of the socialist countries in Europe and how dire they are when they uh, do what Margaret Thatcher said that would happen, which is run out of other people's money, because after a while you do, and then you tragically uh, hurt your economy. I mean, you're looking at Venezuela now. It's just in full news, uh, the desperation of the people there. As we've seen a once healthy um, country just deteriorate uh, to this stage as as their economic machinery uh, fell into the hands of the politicians. So uh, what, what I was what I was saying in that particular column is we don't necessarily have to look abroad. We don't have to look at Cuba to see what happens when government takes over. We can look at Camden. We can look at with Compton. We can look at any and every inner city in this country and see what happens when government controls because government already does control. And I think that um, we should be very pointed with some of these candidates on the on the left, as well as some of these outspoken new Congress people whose communities are already overrun with government and point to that, point to the fact that government controls their schools, government controls their housing, government controls their health care, government controls even their environment through their uh, through, through the policies that they have, which is why you have such lack in those areas, because you can't even build, they can't bring in anything new because of all these uh, excessive policies of government. So we don't have to go far to see socialism. Uh, we can look right here uh, in our inner cities, inner cities, in, interestingly, that President Trump is now trying to fix. He has a major initiative through these Opportunity Zones. In fact, this Thursday uh, at the White House, there will be a whole session uh, with, with investors and others. And it's a private system. This investment in these communities from the private sector because a tax incentive was put into the last tax bill uh, so that they will now look at the inner cities in our own country as opposed to going abroad with their investments. I love this. I, you know, I'm star. I'm looking at your resume. I did not read all of the different uh, awards and, and committees and such, but you're serving on the White House Opportunity Initiative Task Force, or at least you did as, in, as of 2017. So you feel like your message of how to fix or best assist low-income communities is being heard by this White House? I think that it's a team effort, and I think that what, what has happened um, when the president came to power uh, in Washington, was he had, he ran on an idea to fix the inner cities. He's a builder. He wanted everything fixed. He wanted to make America great again, strong again, uh, uh, safe again, uh, wealthy again. Um, all of these uh, ideas, proud again. And so he ran there, and he meant it. And so what he did was come to Washington and announce to the Congress that he really wanted to fix the inner cities in his first inaugural. Uh, in his inauguration, then he uh, said it in his first um, State of the Union address that he wanted to fix the inner city. So he started the initiatives to do that. He's passed probably, oh, I'm saying maybe he's up to five or six now executive orders since the Congress, the Democrats in the Congress won't do anything. The the, the Republicans in the Congress were sleeping through that particular uh, opportunity. Yes. So he's going through other means to get this done. And one very, very large component are these opportunity zones to where now identified through uh, many of the governmental agencies are these um, these zip codes that we know are really broken. And what can happen now in those zip codes through this Opportunity Zone initiative is capital can go in there and it can stay there for 10 years and not have a capital gains tax on it. And so people are excited about investors are extremely excited about this. And the Treasury Department just finished all the regulations for this while the nation was you know, thinking about shutdown, because it, it was shut down, um, many things were still happening. And this is one that has happened. And uh, and there's much, much excitement. And in fact, right there near you, uh, I think Fort Worth is one of the uh, city areas that is really engaged as well. 
Star Parker, I love this. I love the idea of using our, our national energy and abilities to, instead of just as the American left seems to want to do, create more government programs, more government assistance, more dependency, and instead, the, this idea of opportunity zones is really encouraging the private sector to move jobs in and for people right. in those communities to actually know the joy and satisfaction of self-reliance by finding a job. Right. I love that. That's right. Yeah. And it helps with personal responsibility. When people have a little stake and skin in the game, they, they, they take better care. And that's not the only thing that's happening. You know, the, the placement of all these judges in the right place that interpret the law uh, instead of trying to make the law is an important component because it shifts people's attitudes about what they can do and what they uh, should do with their own lives. And it shifts it away from government dictating to them what they should or shouldn't do. And that first thing is to end abortion. We've got to get ourselves out of the abortion business as a society uh, because in addition to the moral implications or medical or the mental um, challenges, it feeds that narrative that you're just a victim, that you can't even control yourself sexually. And so we've built out this whole structure of sexual education or miseducation built on that premise. And so people are, are lost in that idea. So uh, we have a lot of reversing to do to really help the inner city. So the moral component, the social component, and the economic component are working together uh, through this administration to really uh, help and fix these these most distressed zip codes. So there's much excitement, you know, at, at Cure and many of the other organizations who've been working on these urban initiatives for a long time, or at least the ideas uh, to promote these ideas uh, for a long time. School choice is definitely on their radar uh, to get done uh, in this administration as well. To for well, we call it parental choice, where money follows children to the schools the parents want. This is something that that must be done, and people don't know how related that is to the court because you don't think of school issues in the courts, but they are, in particular, uh, because there are Blaine amendments, amendments in different states. I think it's about 39 states have these Blaine or some factor of Blaine that keeps money from following children to the schools the moms want or the parents want. And so it's important that the federal government or, and or the, the court overturns those. And that's one of the cases that's going up there very quickly here uh, to get rid of those um, uh, 100-year-old dated um, interruptions to quality education for poor students. Star, I love that too. And you know, there's so many ways we could have gone in this conversation. And I love that we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking again, but uh, you mentioned your uh, advocacy in the pro-life arena. And that's one, if, if I ever mm -hmm. introduce you anywhere, that is certainly one thing that I, that you just have been an outstanding stellar spokesperson and uh, brave and, uh, and clear in your speaking. I've obviously heard you speak at events where you're just, it's very moving. You're, you're, you're speaking to the value of life and, and preserving it and protecting it. And I know you were outspoken against what happened, the laws that passed recently in New York and uh, almost passed in Virginia, I think passed in Rhode Island. These ideas mm -hmm. that, I mean, it's amazing. We've had so much awakening in the pro-life movement among Americans to realize what abortion really is and, and, and how widespread and how, you know, what it, what, how toxic it is to our culture. Yeah. But the left is moving well, lefter, if I may say. They're moving further. Well, They're going to infanticide. Well, no, no. No, actually, fantasy has always been law. They didn't. In fact, Barack Obama, uh, when he was in the legislature, legislature in uh, Illinois, and babies were born alive, and there was nothing in Roe or Doe that said, "What do you do with them once they're born alive?" And he advocated on the side of what they did in New York to let them die. You cannot, yes, if a mom wants an abortion and the baby's born alive, you let them die. No, this has been the law of the land. What's happened is the Democrats have overplayed their hand, and so society has to uh, face the reality of what they've been supporting 
all along with their $520 million to, um, uh, to, to, to Planned Parenthood every year. Infanticide is, is, has been a reality in this country. What is happening now, as the courts have changed, when they lost on Kavanaugh, they knew that you know their days were numbered, so they started going into the different states to sure up abortion. Uh, that's all that movement is, and they got and they and we have the internet, so we get to see, and the nation gets to see now what they've been doing all along. This is not new. We, I mean, how many opportunities do we get to see into these abortion clinics? Gosnell, okay, Gosnell, body yeah. parts. Planned Parenthood to where they're selling body parts. Uh, no, America just needs to see it up close and personal so that we can decide uh, if we want to continue to fund this uh, crime against humanity. And, and as I told an audience just this weekend in pro-life, you know, maybe the best thing to do is just to stop having your, your boss send the money to Washington so they can send the check to Planned Parenthood and you'll be forced to send the check straight to Planned Parenthood yourself and put in the subject line to kill children. Once that starts to happen, I think that people will have a more uh, concern about what we as a nation have been doing. And one of the reasons that we're ha- having such a hard time uh, having a, a, a moral compass Yep. I hope you, Star, are you still there? Yes, I Okay, am. so I didn't know if we lost you there. Okay, so one last quick topic I want to turn to, you know, and I, we, you are just a, a soldier on the right side for so many things. You have upcoming an, in a, uh, an event sponsored by Cure called Summit for Solutions in Philadelphia. And I wanted to ask you what, if you, what that is, what, if you can tell us briefly about that. Well, what we do is sum up for solutions are we have two, twofold, and this is part of our clergy program. Um, we have one that's a breakfast that follows me wherever I'm going, and I go a lot. In fact, I just got titanium with, um, uh, with, um, who was that? Marriott, and Delta uh, <laughs> sent me a suitcase for my husband by a millionth mile. Uh, so, uh, they thought now that my team is going to be following so that whatever community we're in, we're going to do a sum of our solutions breakfast with the clergy where we bring them together on four areas that are our primary, um, health, um, um, education, housing, and economic empowerment. And then that fifth area, they get to tell us what's going on in your community that we really need to address and think about. And what we've found is in uh, areas, we went into Chicago crime. They'd had 70 shootings in one weekend. In Philadelphia, they, there's much discussion about gentrification. They're not understanding what is going on in our communities that business is coming in and forcing people out, and what can we be thinking about in those areas. We're also going up into Minnesota because there's a lot of, of our pastors there who are concerned about um, Congresswoman Omar taking on Israel, and they want a little bit deeper understanding of what that looks like. And so we'll be going up there with an information session uh, in, in a couple of weeks. So uh, the Summit for Solutions breakfasts are exclusive to pastors in their local community, mm-hmm. uh, in whatever community I may go, be going to, whether it's Portland or Seattle or anywhere we find uh, that we can pull some of our clergy together and they invite uh, other clergy. We really want to fix this, this, this society. We really, and we believe in that weakest link because when we um, correct that weakest link and we strengthen it, then the rest of the society uh, is strengthened. You know, Debbie, you've heard me say that we're like a, a, a car in the mud uh, and that one tire just keeps spinning. That one tire, that, that, that um, $900 billion we spend annually on anti-poverty programs is a quarter of the budget. 
And so the tire's spinning and spinning, just can't get out of the mud. And so we're going into these communities with these summit breakfasts. And then we have Summit for Solutions town halls to where pastors in our program can have us come in and just do a, a, a whole evening answering the questions of all their congregates. Uh, we're going into North Carolina, for instance, because they keep insisting, the left keeps insisting that they have more voter fraud and, uh, than, than they have voters and that there's a challenge down there and that if they um, and that um, these, the court decision uh, is going to impact them. And they keep saying they're stealing the elections, as you mentioned, you know, what even Hillary's saying, as if they stole the elections up there in uh, Wisconsin. So we're going to go in there for that particular topic as well. So it's very topical in some areas, but it's a specialty out of our clergy, um, our clergy program. You are just something, Star. I have to tell you, I was last night I was reading some things, getting ready for this, and this morning I was thinking, I hope you occasionally sleep. I mean, I want to, you're just <laughs> relentless. I've got a great team. Because of the generosity of free people giving us the money to do our work, we accept no government. In fact, we don't think government should be in the, business, in the charity business at all. And because of those benevolent folks giving us money, um, to, to do our work as a nonprofit. Uh, we have a staff of 12 people, so they do their work, and so it makes my job a little bit easier, um, but I appreciate it. And I do try to get some sleep sometimes, but I'm, you know, I'm a foot soldier for freedom. I tell people I'm living the Mother Teresa life. I'm going out there to get just that one. You know, I read over and over again that uh, story about the little lost sheep. And when God went to go get the little lost sheep, you know, I think about what was he saying to the other 99? What was that message? And I think it was to shore them up, to know that we're so special and uniquely made that he'll come get us even in our mistakes. And and in knowing that, we don't need a big, heavy hand of government. And you know my, yourself that this this is not just my political career, this or my profession. This is personal to me. You know, I was in and out of those abortion clinics. I believe the lie of the left. I, after the fourth abortion is when I finally had a gut instinct that there's got to be something wrong with killing your your offspring. I believe their lies that, that, that Uncle Sam would take care of me and ended up on welfare and carving out a little dark hole that I barely got out of. Uh, you know, I believed all of the things that were that they're still selling to the poor today, and I also know that there's an alternative because once I had a Christian conversion and changed my life, got a degree, started a business, I started to see that there was virtue in capitalism, and there's and there's honor in not stealing from my neighbor for to, for myself to be successful. So I have great venom for uh, politicians who try to sell that line to poor people because it's just not true. It's a lie, and it cripples them from really maximizing the potentials that they do have to 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 just live in peace. And it doesn't it doesn't matter how much money I have to bank it. Just can you live in peace? And welfare dependency is not a peaceful existence. Star Parker. She we're speaking with Star Parker. She's the founder of Cure, the Center for Urban Renewal and Education. The website is urbancure.org, and I know they rely on donations from people like you who hear the message, hear her passion, hear her all the great ideas they are pursuing, and um, and that's how they go forward because people discover that they can be part of helping truly uplift their fellow Americans without growing government and government dependency. So, Star, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I look forward to uh, talking to you again real soon. We'll do it again soon. Thank you so much. And folks, that was Star Parker, Urban Cure. Stay tuned. Three-second break. Be right back. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. You know, yesterday on the show, I talked about this idea that just like we have 
Blexit, the black and Latina exit from the Democrat Party and the walk away movement, people walking away from big government liberalism. And now we have another movement started by some Jewish performers and athletes. And one person's calling it uh, the Jexodus. There are a couple other different names people are using, but the same idea. We need to have a, my word, feminine exit female exit from big government lies from the radical left. Feminine exit, or you can call it women walk away, whatever you call it, we need to be women in this country. We are part of rescuing and saving this country. You know, Candace Owens, who's the founder of the Blexit idea, she says, you know, black and Latina Americans are gonna save this country. And she's right, if she can bring people around to voting against the radical American left, the Marxist left that has overtaken the Democrat Party, that is steering this country in a horrible direction, they can help save America, and so can women. So we just spoke with Star Parker. Star Parker made allusion a little bit to her earlier life before she got back on track, but she literally was one of those people in California on welfare, dropped out of high school, as she just said, four abortions, uh, got in some trouble with drugs. I actually heard her speak years ago where she said, I could tell you some of the other things I did, but I'm not sure what the statute of limitations is, so I better not tell you the details. I mean, she really was off on the wrong track, had a beautiful Christian conversion, knew, just walked into a church one day, heard what a pastor said and realized, I got to make a better life. She went from that life to being truly one of the most prominent national voices in Washington about conservative solutions, not just advocating against big government, but actually coming up with, she worked on the welfare reform bill in the late 90s, coming up with reform bills now, ideas, proposals. She is in the mix. In, on so many issues in America, on education, improving the quality of education, low-income school districts, low-income areas in our country, and pushing for uh, provisions that inspire people to believe in capitalism, believe in free markets, getting businesses to move into low-income areas, and giving tax incentives so those businesses can go into those areas, create jobs. This is the American dream answer to the challenges we face in our country. By contrast, so Star, I would say Star Parker, maybe she was like an early leader of the Feminexit. I didn't run this by her, but my idea, Feminexit, the female exiting, the feminist exit from the left-wing America, or you can call it women walk away. I wanna contrast what Star Parker does, her life, blesses truly millions of Americans, truly millions. People who get the conservative, pro-free market, pro-capitalist, pro-America message from her every day, from CURE, her organization, from pastors who hear what she has to say. I wanna contrast that with what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is trying to sell you. We have a brief clip by Alexandria. And by the way, in case you think the American left, you can keep her face up there. While you, if you think the American left is even marginally thinking, keep this in mind. This young woman, wait, don't let her talk yet. This young woman is a, a she is educated in America's left-wing universities. She majored in economics, startlingly, at, at Boston University, and she's a rabid socialist. She gave a talk at the big uh, thing they have in, here in Texas, South by Southwest. It's a music festival. This is a big festival. She spoke there this year, just last couple weeks ago, last week. 
She spoke there. She got a bigger crowd showing up for 29-year-old socialist than Beto O'Rourke got, an obvious Democrat potential contender for president. Bigger crowd than Kamala Harris got at South by Southwest. More young, minds full of mush, to borrow, borrow Limbaugh's phrase, went to hear her than potential presidential candidates. And this is what she had to say about socialism. Capitalism isn't to me, is it's an ideology of capital. It puts capital, the most important thing is the concentration of capital, and it means that we seek and prioritize profit and the accumulation of money above all else, and we seek it at any human and environmental cost. Capitalism is based on scarcity. And what happens when there is enough for everyone to eat? What happens when there is enough for everyone to be clothed? Then you have to uh, make scarcity artif artificial. Okay, this woman is, this is left-wing blather speak. I don't even know, I can't think of a nice word. Left-wing blather speak. She's living in a time when the communist and socialist economies in this world are starving people to death. In Cuba, they're hungry. And they have to build, they have to make it a crime to try to move away. They have to force you to live there. In Venezuela, people are starving to death. They are breaking into zoos to eat zoo animals or eating their pets. She's watching socialism do that. She lives in a country, America, with the most abundance and prosperity on all the planet Earth. And she's sitting up there at a stage getting unbelievable crowds to show up to hear her argue that capitalism, she said it in this speech, I couldn't play her whole, because you'd pull your hair out, her whole speech. She said capitalism is based on scarcity. There is nothing more, you couldn't make a more moronic assessment of economics than that. Capitalism creates abundance because it inspires people to produce, to take care of themselves, to produce a product or service that somebody else wants. And if you want to be better off and you don't have a job, you're allowed in our country to make your own job, to create your own business, to create your own product, to create your own service. Capitalism produces abundance. Socialism produces scarcity, poverty, misery, and starvation. And she sits on a stage in a, a massively popular uh, conference, or I don't know what South by Southwest, I think it's a music name, but whatever it is, the point is tons of young people going more interested in her moral insanity, her truly economic illiteracy, than in hearing what some of the other Dem the Democrat candidates for president might say. This woman has no idea what she's talking about. She's exactly, she should be the, she, the epitome, she should be the dictionary definition of the kind of thinking that every woman in America should walk away from. She's advocating a system that has destroyed lives, killed children. Children are dying in Venezuela of diseases where all they would need in any other country in the world with even a marginal amount of prosperity, you would take the child to the hospital, the doctor, get some medication done, go home, kids all better. Instead, children are dying there because, precisely because of the system she's advocating. She, 
all of us in America, especially women, we need to wise up and not be duped, not be blindsided, not be mesmerized by this moral insanity, this economic illiteracy spewing out of her ignorant mouth. You have contrast, I urge you, contrast. Star Parker pulled herself out of a life of government dependency, which is just, and Star is right, by the way, all of the programs that Democrats create in America, these massive government assistance programs that create dependency, that provide for you, so they give you a place to live and, and uh, provide for your education and your childcare and your food and your housing, provide everything you need, that is socialism in a microcosm in America. And it's created poverty. It's, it has bred weakness. It has caused people to lose their God-given sense of adventure and identity and purpose and moving forward in life and becoming, becoming prosperous and self-reliant. The Democrats have already tried socialism in America in the inner cities, as Star Parker pointed out. We can look around the world and see what's happening in Venezuela. It is not a pretend country. This isn't just a fantasy movie somebody, somebody made up about a place far away. These are real people in our hemisphere starving to death because of an idea, because of a philosophy that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the radical American left are trying to sell you. Time for the Blexit, the Jexodus, and the Feminexit from radical leftism. We don't need any of it. We all have to wise up Understand the difference. Contrast Star Parker, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Be in the Star Parker team. Be on the team that stands up for America. And this show, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. If you're watching this on Facebook, please like this Facebook page. Please review it. Please share this show. Share it over creation. If you're watching on, on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, please Subscribe to that channel. Send me a message. You can email me at americachemitalk at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. And the last and maybe most important is go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. You can find conveniently located on the homepage all the shows, all the interviews, all my first fives. You can go back as far as you want, find the old shows. This is a library of arguments my show, my website is an, a library of arguments for America and for the goodness of America. Freedom is in the air. People are catching up with this idea of freedom. That's why Blex is taking off. That's why this Judexus got started. And this is why we need to have the feminine exit. We need to, do we need to take big gulps of air, of freedom in the air, and get rid of the idea that Alexandria is trying to, and the leftists and Bernie Sanders, and frankly, the whole Democrat party in this country are trying to sell you. We need to refuse to surrender our freedom. And if you like what you're hearing on this, on this show, I cannot urge you strongly enough to consider supporting this show. On my website, americachemitalk.org, on the homepage, there's a donate button. No one has ever paid me a nickel for all the shows I've done. No one. I do this out of passion and love of America. I would love your support, your help, so I can continue doing it so I can spread my message more broadly. I'd love your help, and more than ever, I'd love to have you come back every day, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, and tune in to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. Talk to you tomorrow. Voice upon voice, like a crashing wave.
Can We Talk? Truth About America. Can you-